Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a bright day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's programme, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Carrie-Anne Walters alongside me. Carrie-Anne is the Registered Regional Support Manager at Blossom Home Care Limited, a family business which delivers care to individuals in their own homes and within their own communities, primarily covering the North East and North Yorkshire. Uh, Carrie-Anne, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. It's a real pleasure having you joining us on the airwaves. Um, Normally, of course, we would dive straight in to the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, We know that, I'm sure you'll agree, it is one of the greatest challenges of our time. It's unprecedented for this generation of leaders within businesses, within organisations, within communities. And considering that you've been involved on the front line through this time, just how has it been in terms of affecting your operations over the period? I can imagine the challenges have been huge. Um, It has been. um, I must admit, though, I think we've we've had some really good responses um, with our carers and our service users, really. Um, I mean, here at Blossom, we did jump on it pretty quickly right at the beginning. Um, Our directors were really good, um, especially with um, one of our directors being um, a a district nurse, um, a registered nurse. She was pretty good at uh, getting all of the PPE in pretty quickly. And right at the beginning, we we asked our carers to have full PPE when they were going into clients' homes, stuff like that. So, so we we stopped any or, or we re- reduced the the risk of any transmissions really going from clients' homes. We locked down areas so that if there was any um, cases, they were they were put into certain areas and they weren't contracted over different areas and stuff like that so that was quite good um, but I must say that we didn't have we had there was only one lady that went into hospital um, and contracted COVID while she was in hospital and um, she came home and it wasn't it wasn't spread over any areas it was keep it kept into her home um, and that was it and then um, after a week it was she had a negative test and that was it. That was the only other one that we had. Um, and there was no carers that went off sick with it. Um, so it was quite, we, we con- it was contained quite quite good within within our company um, itself. Um, PPE-wise, um, we had quite a good response from our local authorities. Um, towards the middle, at the middle of the lockdown, they were, they were um, giving out free, uh, we we had to fill out forms, sending them off, and they were quite good at responding back to us. So if we did have any shortage or anything, they they were quite good at responding to us uh, and sending them out quite quickly within like a forty eight hour period. And um, so if there was any, if any t- any time we did have we well, we thought we were going to have any sort of shortage, they responded quite quickly to us, um, and then the director. Um, put in her order as quickly as possible, so we were on top of them 
um, quite quickly as well. Um, and they, they've got other businesses, so that we called on resources from, from their other businesses to help out um, getting PPE from their, that side as well. So we were, we were like really taking um, any resources that we could really from any side of anywhere. Um, so so we, we used anything really, which was quite good. And just how challenging during this time has it been managing mental health within the company? Because you hear so many stories of um, caregivers having to sort of stay away from their families to remain in homes to reduce the risk of transmission. I can imagine that's been so difficult. Right at the beginning, it was it was quite difficult because they were all very much like, "What, what, what should we do? What should we do? Like, I don't want to go home. My husband's got this. My children and my children. Um. They're quite. Some of them are quite poorly. Not poorly at the time, but they were. They were like. They, they were quite easily pick up things, um, and they were quite scared. Some of the clients were. were some of the service users were quite scared when they saw them dressed in all of this attire, um, and they were. They were like, I, "I don't want you to come in the house dressed like that." And they were, but I have to, um, because I don't want to go home, um, like. Just in case, if we did get contact anything from any clients, they didn't want to take it home. So it was it was quite challenging to to say to them, "Well, you you must wear this because it, it's not not only is it to protect yourselves and the service users, but it's also to protect your family." And um, so getting them to do this at the beginning um, was was quite challenging, but after a few weeks, it just become the norm. Um, and mm. then when it come to the stage, uh, like a couple of months ago, when when it was like it started to get a little bit more relaxed, nobody wanted to stop doing it. So most of our carers are still doing it. Mm. So they're not. So it, it hasn't actually become relaxed within our company. They are still wearing, still wearing um, the whole um, attire. They're still wearing the visors, the masks, um, all of the PPE. We've even got like the disposable um, full-bodied outfits. Um, some of the carers um, are still wearing them for certain service users that are still with high at high risk. Mm, so, still seems like it's very, very hectic within the uh, the business. Um, even though yeah. the numbers are saying very, very differently, um, yeah. has the situation improved now with of course the provision of pp and other such things and also clearer guidelines because some months ago that was a very well publicized issue as well yes it was um, it, it was up and down we were getting emails left right and center saying one thing um, and then other people saying another thing um whereas within blossom we started right from the beginning wearing the full pe so nothing's really changed with with um, the guidelines within our company because we started right from the beginning, you will wear this PPE and nothing's changed. And even though, of course, it's been a very challenging and a very sensitive time, are there any positives that you can take from this whole experience in the way that it's maybe brought you all closer together as a team? Yeah, yeah. The the girls have pulled together, definitely. Um, And the gentlemen, sorry. Um, it's definitely been a, a more. They, they do help out a lot more. Um, if there's, if, if for any reason, um, it, we have had situations where 
So the, another member of families have had to self-isolate due to their job. And they've, 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 they've been had a, a worry in the family. The other carers have said, right, okay, well, you de- you deal with that, and we'll deal with your with your jobs, um, like your your um, service users. They've pulled together like that. We, we'll sort that out. You deal with your side, um, and they've they've got on like that, um, pulled together. Or um, if someone's been feeling poorly or anything like that, straight away, like go home. We'll sort this out. Um, it, it has been a case. It, it's not a case of like tip for tat now. Oh, you're feeling poorly. This, that, and the other. It's been right. No, we'll sort this. Um, it has. It, it, it's been totally different environment as well. It's certainly good to hear that it's really brought everybody closer together and sort of closely tied into that previous question is there anything that you would say that during this sort of crisis management experience if we call it that you've almost learned in your leadership role um yes it, it we've got a lot more there's a lot we found out there's a, a lot more different ways of communicating with people um i mean before all of this i didn't know what zoom was <laughs> Which was um, very strange. Um, we've we've had a lot more um, ways of developing um, with our interview, like ways to interview. Um, we've had a lot more um, meetings and um, via Zooms. We have um, we we now do a lot more um, audits um, through technology. Um, we do. Um, something else I was going to say that I can't remember what it was now. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of we do a lot of our day to day work um, with technology now. Um, there there is so there's so many different things that we can deal with that we don't have to be in the office for. Um, that we've um, innovated now. It, it is a whole different world to what it was before pre-COVID. Mm. Um, it, it, is, it is so much. The, the things that we used to do before COVID, where we thought that we needed to be in in the office to be able to uh, to run the office, we don't need to do, which is it has opened our eyes um, to say, right, to be able to to audit things and make sure things are running properly or to communicate with carers and other managers um, and make sure that clients and other service users um, are getting the care that they need. We don't actually need to be in the office now. We can do that from home, which is so much better because um, we can make sure that they are getting what they need and we can make sure that the carers, we can we can do a carer supervision um, and things like that, make sure that they are, that they're getting the training they need and stuff like that remotely now. We can do it over Zoom and we can do it over a telephone call and stuff like that. We can still make sure they're getting what they need. It doesn't need, necessarily need to be um, from the office, which is so much better, we can still manage and do leaderships and um, do, um, do our make sure that our leadership skills are showing 
um, and stuff like that without having to be in the office to do it. And it's going to be an interesting time, isn't it? Because even though these things are going to be customary under the uh, the new normal, when we do fast forward, say, one, maybe two years, when hopefully by then COVID-19 is no longer an issue, some of these features of the lockdown period, such as this increased use of technology, this innovation, yeah. this could really become a permanent fixture in the way that we operate in business in this country, couldn't it? So that might well Definitely. be something that's just here to stay, even if it isn't out of necessity definitely definitely um i mean obviously one of the features that we have within blossom now um is we obviously we do all of our um our all of our notes um on an internet feature um so that all of our all of our clients families and that can get on to to read all of their um all of their um aunties, uncles, mothers, fathers, notes to be able to read. They don't have to go to their relatives' houses to read what the carers have done. So now they can do that anywhere in the world. Um, so they don't actually have to go and visit their parents or their relatives' homes, um, which is a good feature now. Um, so, so, pre, so, so they don't... What am I trying to say? Um, so, so, so that's that's a good thing. So, if, if anything like this ever happens again, and there was a lockdown or anything, they, they don't have to be with them to be able to make sure that their care um, mm. is getting done. No, I completely get where you're coming from from uh, that point of view, and just thinking about what the future might bring. Just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, uh, Carrie Ann. Um, over the next 12 months, we know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal in the way that we work and the way that we live until there is ultimately a cure or a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. Let's keep our fingers crossed that that will indeed prove to be the case. But over this period of time, where do you see Blossom Home Care being a year from now? And what is it that you are really hoping to achieve? Um, within within Blossom, I'm hoping uh, we're hoping to achieve that we go that we have the best care that we have um, within the North Allerton and Tadcaster area for it to go national. Because um, we are obviously we're franchising now, so we're hoping that the the just blooming good care that we provide here that we provide it nationally. Um, um. And I certainly do wish you all the luck in the world with that endeavour, uh, for sure. And just before I do uh, let you go, uh, Carrie Ann, um, for those listeners tuning in who may be aspiring to step into leadership roles themselves and maybe run their own businesses in the future, what advice do you have for them to get them on the road to success based on your own experience? Um, just to be, you've got to be just firm and fair. Just be firm but fair. Um, you've got to listen to them. Um, you've got to listen to your employees. Um, you've got to take on board what they say, but you've got to be—you've got to be fair. You've got—you've got to—you've got, to, got to be firm with them. You've got to treat them all exactly the same. You can't have your favourites. Um, you've got to—you've got to make sure that you—you you do exactly the same with one as what you do with the other. But you've got to listen to what they say. You've got to take on board. Um, You've got to listen to what their needs are. Um, 
if they need extra training, give them extra training. Um, but you've got to you've got to guide them. You've got to. Um, there's a big difference between leadership and management. A huge difference. Mm. They are fundamentally different. Um, I think you're yeah. absolutely right yeah. in uh, saying yeah. that. Um, but of course, there is some overlap, isn't there? Of course, people management, I think, is an important facet of, of leadership. Yeah. I think that's um, yeah. something certainly to consider. Yeah, you've got to help them with the development. Absolutely right. Carrie Ann, I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme uh, this morning. And thank you ever so much for the time taken to join us. And I actually think it would be wonderful after having you on to share your views today to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are coming along at Blossom over the uh, the next few months. It's been wonderful to meet you. It's been wonderful having you with us as well, Carrie Ann. Thank you ever so much for your time. And most importantly, do take care and stay safe with all still going on. And you. Thank you. I was speaking on today's programme to Carrie Ann Walters, Registered Regional Support Manager at Blossom Home Care Limited. And I would like to take the time to reiterate that message to all of our listeners today. Do please continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and look after others. It makes a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, if you haven't heard it before, coming up next on the programme is my exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final, following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I do hope that you all enjoy listening, and that is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want him to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry 
doing it individually, mm. and that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I, I've I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making... This, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in 
uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are injured almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you, you, union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be uh, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and 
from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're sensible enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you're able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, 
we actually got to find, this is absolutely true, we've got to find a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, well, you're actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egbert in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game, um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was, that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. 
But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, uh, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing all the videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, up and not just sitting balls out here. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that 
A, he saw when I was at West Ham, and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think, it, <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if you wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about 8 o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um. Well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And, of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the... Uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Sadly, mm. they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So um, yes, it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month, I think it was, and uh, enjoyed the experience. 
and I earned a few quid, and I think it pays for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, uh, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing, or managing, or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, 
its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.